Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Nathan Purdy comes to us from Ireland. He preached this message many years ago at the Dayton Interchurch Holiness Convention, and he titles it, Idolatry. This is a wonderful message, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Thank you very much to the Strouds for that beautiful song this morning. If you have your Bible with you, I'd appreciate if you could turn to the book of Psalms and Psalm number 16. Psalm number 16 and beginning to read at verse number 1. Psalm 16, verse 1, we read, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, I have said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee. But to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is all my delight, their sorrow shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My realms also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Will you join your hearts with me as we pray for the Lord's anointing and blessing this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who inspired it. And this morning, as we come together as your people, we realize that any value that we get from this message will be because your Holy Spirit has anointed it. We pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit who anointed and inspired this word, Father, would now open our hearts to understand it. We need your help, O Holy Spirit, and we pray that you would fall afresh upon us, for it's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. It was January 2006 when I sat on an airplane in Dublin Airport in Ireland and was uh, about to come over here to attend Penview Bible Institute. There were many thoughts going through my mind and I had my own preconceived ideas of what America would be like. The first semester I came here, I uh, was studying history of civilization under Dr. Brian Black and one of his classes required a field trip to go to Washington DC. 
And so it was quite a, an amazing experience for me as someone who had just come to the country to get to visit your capital. And I'll never forget how uh, awesome it was to be here in the capital of America, to see the Lincoln Memorial, to see the Washington Monument, to see the White House, to see all of the war memorials, things I'd only ever seen in photographs, and now I got to see them with my own eyes. But there was another field trip that we took at Penview, this time it was in world religions class with Brother Stephen Mowry. In world religions, obviously we were studying to uh, find out what the major religions of the world really taught. What do the Buddhists believe? What do the Muslims believe? What do the Hindus believe? And so he was, of course, teaching us what they believe so that if we could ever engage one in conversation, we would at least have some idea of what they believed and hopefully help them to get to Jesus. So in this uh, world religions class, Brother Mary took us on a field trip down to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, as much as I remember the visit to Washington, D.C., I think I remember this visit even more. For in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, we stopped at a mosque, and we went into a mosque, and we listened to an imam as he was teaching us all of what they believe. And there was a Q&A session and he showed us through the mosque and showed us how they prayed and where they prayed to and how many times a day they prayed. And it was a very surreal experience for me to stand in a mosque in America and listen to an imam talking freely about his faith. Now, I'm not terribly naive, I don't think, but that was surreal to be in America and standing in a mosque and listening to this imam speak. On that day, we didn't only go to a mosque, we also went to a Hindu temple. And if the mosque was surreal, the Hindu temple was equally surreal. Driving through rural Pennsylvania, really, it seemed like Amish country almost. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, you see this Hindu temple as if it had been lifted out of India or Burma and set right in the heart of rural Pennsylvania. And so we went into this Hindu temple. And as you're walking through the hallways of this Hindu temple, you can see all of the idols and all of the things that represent these deities that they worship. And here we were again in America, in rural Pennsylvania, and we were seeing idolatry with our own eyes. When we went into this large room that probably held four or five hundred people, there in the very front there was an idol and people would come in. We were at the back. We didn't want anything to do, obviously, with anything to do with this idol. We were spectating. We were watching. And we watched as people came in and they started bowing down to this idol. They started chanting and singing. And at the end of the whole ceremony, I think there was this music playing. And when it reached a climax, the people were bowing. They were worshiping. They were praying, they were chanting, and then I think they offered the idol some food. Now, if I'm absolutely honest with you, I find it hard in my mind to grasp how many days in a row do you give an idol food till you figure out that it's not actually hungry. If it was me, after one day or after two, I'd think there's something a little odd here. I give the idol food yesterday and it didn't eat it, and I give it today and it's finally be getting hungry if there's anything there, and, but they keep offering their food. And as we sit in the back watching all of this, it feels surreal. Here in America, we are watching people performing right before our eyes idolatry. 
And sometimes I think whenever you and I hear about idolatry, that's what we think. Idolatry is something that's way out there. If we were to visit India or Burma, we wouldn't be surprised to find a temple and we wouldn't be surprised to find people going in and performing some kind of idolatry. If you were to stand at the entrance of some of those temples and you got into a dialogue with one of the people going in to worship their idol and they said, hey, you're welcome to come visit my house and you visited their house, you wouldn't be shocked. You wouldn't be surprised to find a shrine with an idol and people worshiping it. You would expect that. But to us, idolatry is like that. It's way out there, overseas, far away. And if we find it at home, it's kind of a little weird. In fact, whenever I worked for a year at a placement uh, in Northern Ireland, there were um, quite a number of people came from India to work at the same company where I was working, and uh, they would spend a few years in Northern Ireland, and then they would go back to India. And one of my friends there that was, I got friendly with one of them, and he would spend hours, literally hours, every morning praying to his idol, worshiping his idol, meditating before his idol. That didn't really shock me. That's what you expect when it's way out there, overseas, far away and distant. And yet whenever you open your Bible in the Old Testament, really no matter where you open your Bible, you're not actually that far from the children of Israel committing idolatry. In fact, it has been described as the most common sin that the children of Israel fell into. And whenever you think about that, doesn't that surprise you? Can you imagine you'd been one of the children of Israel and you'd seen all the miracles of deliverance that got you out of Egypt? Wouldn't you think when you saw the power of God that was so powerful and so omnipotent that the magicians and wizards of Egypt, they said to Pharaoh, listen, we have exhausted all of our power. We have exhausted all of our strength. And their God, he's just moving his little finger. This is the finger of that God. He is so powerful. He is so mighty. And the children of Israel saw that with their own eyes. And so God brings them out of Egypt and he gets them to the Red Sea. And there they are at the Red Sea and they panic and they cry out to God and God delivers them across the... Now, if you'd seen that, wouldn't you think I would never doubt this God ever in my life again? He is a powerful God. He's omnipotent God. And they say when they get across there, this God must love us because he's delivered us. And there's no God like you, no God like you. And yet not very many pages later, what are they doing? They're committing idolatry. Imagine we could go to a museum that took us through a timeline of the Old Testament. And when you get there, there's a room where you see all of those plagues. Just imagine, it's not obviously, could it couldn't happen, but imagine you could see a video of all of the plagues and the deliverance across the Red Sea. You would be rejoicing. You'd be saying, this God is our God and he is powerful and we will trust him and we will worship him and we will serve him and we will never doubt him because look at how powerful he is. And then you would move into the next room and behind some glass case or inside it, you would see an idol that they bowed down and worshiped and you'd be scratching your head, dumbfounded. How could they turn away from the true God and start worshiping a false God? But we kind of let ourselves off the hook because it's either way out there in India or Burma or somewhere like that, or it's way back there in the pages of the Old Testament. But we've kind of moved on. Idolatry, that's out there or back there, but it's not really a problem with us. 
And yet when you see the pervasiveness of idolatry out there and in the pages of the Old Testament, it begs us to ask the question, why? Why is idolatry so prevalent in the Old Testament? Why is it so common across our world? And the answer is because every single one of us, you and me and everybody you've ever met, are made in the image of God and our hearts are like factories. They produce these deep longings, your heart, my heart, deep longings, deep cravings, deep desires that are within our heart, some of which only God can satisfy. And your heart and my heart creates fears and produces these deep urge and fears and anxieties. And we end up looking to someone or something to defend us, to secure us, to protect us from our fears. And you and I are very, very gifted at elevating someone or something other than God and saying, you will provide for our needs. You will satisfy our cravings. You will satisfy our longings. You will secure us from our fears. And we begin to love those idols, trust those idols, sacrifice to those idols, and we find ourselves committing idolatry. God knew your heart and he knew my heart better than we know it ourselves. He knew how deep our longings would be, how deep and real our fears would be. And so at the very top of his list of commandments, he says, I want you to have no other gods before me. Why did he put it number one? He knew your heart. He knew my heart. And he said, I don't want you to have any other gods before me. And because all of our hearts are the same and we elevate someone or something to satisfy our needs, that's why every village and town and city in America is teeming with as many idols as any town or village or city in India or Burma. That's why you've often heard it said, it's not a matter of whether you worship, it's what you worship. Every single one of us, you and me, all of us, are trusting someone or something to meet the needs of our heart. Every single one of us is trusting someone or something to secure us from our fears. We see a very graphic illustration of this in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. Whenever we meet with the prophet Elijah, whenever Elijah shows up in the scripture, we know that the children of Israel are starting to turn toward a false god called Baal. Now watch what happens here because the children of Israel had a very good desire. Their desire was for rain. It was a farming community. They needed rain. And God had in fact said to them, if you love me, if you serve me, and if you worship me, I'll give you rain. No doubt about it. If you love me, worship me, I'll send you rain. And yet the children of Israel have this good desire for rain. They have a very genuine fear that it won't rain. For if there's no rain and the crops don't grow, they have nothing to eat. But instead of turning to God, who's in charge of the rain, they turn to Baal. Baal is known, among other things, as being the weather god. And so they elevate Baal to this position. You can give us rain. Therefore, we will love you, we will serve you, and we will sacrifice to you. And they begin this idolatry, turning from God to Baal. So isn't it interesting, whenever God says to Elijah, I want you to go to Ahab the king, and I want you to say to him, it's not going to rain until I say so. There's not going to be a drop of rain fall from the skies until I say so, for I am the true God and I'm the one who controls the rain. And so for over three years, there's not a drop of rain falling from the sky, not a drop. And they're worshiping Baal and they're sacrificing to Baal and they're doing everything they can to appease Baal, but he's not sending rain. Why? Because he can't send rain. 
Look at what it says in verse 4 of their passage. Their sorrow shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Why is that? Because you can turn to another God, but it's always going to disappoint you. It's always going to disappoint you. So after about three years or three and a half years, God says to Elijah, I want you to go back to Ahab and we're going to have a contest, a duel on the top of Mount Carmel, which was incidentally where some of the people thought Baal lived on Mount Carmel. So Elijah meets there, and you know the story very well. The prophets of Baal, there's 450 of them, and they cut up the sacrifice and they put it on the altar, and they begin to cry out to Baal to send fire from heaven. And so they cry out to Baal all morning, and it gets to lunchtime, and there's no fire falling from heaven, no spark, no smoke, no nothing. And so Elijah says, listen, maybe Baal has gone for a walk. We'll give you a little bit longer, and maybe he'll get home. Or maybe he's fallen asleep and you need to cry a little louder because if you cry a little louder, maybe you'll wake him up. Maybe he's gone to the restroom. Who knows where Beale is, but we're going to give you a little bit longer and you can cry a a little bit louder and, you know, let's see what Beale can do. So they cry to the time of the evening sacrifice. They're doing everything to appease Beale, cutting themselves until their blood is flowing and there's no fire from heaven. Why? Because Beale cannot send fire from heaven. So Elijah, don't you love this? Elijah rebuilds the altar, puts a sacrifice on it, and he says to the guys, put four barrels of water over the sacrifice. And they put four barrels of water. And he says, let's let's do it again. Let's just show everybody that whenever God answers prayer, this is not some little trick that we performed. I mean, we didn't have some, you know, thing set up that it would kind of go off by itself. He says, cover it again with water. He says the third time, do it again. And then Elijah stands back and he cries out to the true God. And he says, God, let everybody here know who the true God is, who the living God is, who the God who can answer our prayers is. He says, send the fire. And God sends the fire and consumes that sacrifice right there. Why? Because he's the only God who can send the fire. And so what happens next? Elijah goes and he starts praying, God, send the rain. Baal has disappointed these people for three and a half years. Send the rain. And he sees a little cloud the size of a man's fist coming. And before long, the skies are growing black. The lightning is flashing. The thunder is roaring. And he says to Ab, if you want to get home dry, you better get going really fast. Because I can hear the sound of the abundance of rain. And before long, there is this downpour of rain coming from heaven. Why is that? Because he is the God who controls the rain. He's the God who can send the fire. He's the God who can answer prayer. He is the one true living God. Whenever we see those people turning to Baal, we can say, that's awfully odd. Why would they do that? But you and I have a habit of doing exactly the same thing. There are things that we take in our lives and we elevate them up and we say, you can satisfy this craving in my heart. Therefore, I will love you. I will sacrifice to you. I will serve you. I will worship you. And you're going to come through for me and you're going to satisfy the need of my heart. One very obvious one that's in the Bible and very obvious to all of us is money. There is a very deep conviction in many of our hearts, isn't it right, that if we had more money, we would be satisfied. 
Or if we had more money in our bank account, we would feel secure because if something went wrong, that money could come through for us. And so what do we do? We start sacrificing to that money. We'll sacrifice to the idol. We'll sacrifice our time. We'll sacrifice time alone with family. We'll sacrifice time alone with God. And when push comes to shove, we're so convinced that money can satisfy our hearts that we'll begin to tinker and tamper with the very principles of the word of God, trying to please the God so that it will come through for us and satisfy our hearts. That's what every advertiser knows. Doesn't it happen to you sometimes? It happens to me. If you're sitting in a doctor's office or a dentist somewhere and you see a bunch of magazines, the vast majority of them you wouldn't want to touch, but you might see one that looks like it might be interesting and you pick it up and you see a beautiful home, absolutely beautiful. The most beautiful home you've ever seen in your life and doesn't something in your heart almost want to say, if I lived there, I'd be happy. If I lived in that home, I'd be satisfied. Or if it's not the home, maybe it's a truck or a car. If I owned that truck, if I owned that car, I mean, I would never even get sick anymore. That, that would just so satisfy my, I would just, you know, life would just be amazing. I would be so satisfied if I had that truck. Some time ago, I read an autobiography that had been written by a very wealthy man. In fact, if he'd lived today, he would be number one in Fortune 100, the most wealthy people on the earth. If he'd lived today and you'd picked up a magazine, you would have seen his house in the picture, his new house, because he was building them all the time. That's how rich he was. If he'd lived today, you would have seen his cars in the magazines, the custom hand-built vehicles that you think, if I could sit in that and drive that, life would be so good. And this man wrote an autobiography. You've read it and I've read it. His name was Solomon. And he said, I had all of those things that money could buy. And you might think that he's crying with his heart, satisfied, 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 but he's not. He's crying meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. Why is that? Because everything that money can do for you it cannot ultimately satisfy the deep needs of your heart Solomon is a man who is everything but God and he realizes it's worth nothing and he gets to the end of his book and he says I figured it all out love God fear God and do what he tells you because that's the key to being satisfied Doesn't the Bible tell us about another man called Job who lost everything? He lost his health. He lost his wealth. He lost his family. He lost everything. And yet he says, I came into this world with nothing on and I leave with nothing on, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Here was a man who had nothing but God and he realizes I have everything. But you and I can elevate money and say, I will serve you. I will give all of my life to you. And yet as much as you serve that God, it will never satisfy your heart. And one of the most cruel twists that you see in life is whenever some man gets to the latter stages of his life, he has sacrificed his family to this God. He has sacrificed his health to this God. He has sacrificed his soul to this God. What more could he give? He has every amount of money you could ever wish for. Homes in five places in America takes two vacations a year but his heart is empty it's barren and it's broken because he doesn't have God I'd rather be a pauper with God than a millionaire without him because money can't satisfy your heart no matter how deeply you think it can it can't can I give you another example of one of modern day idols I think it can be our children we have two beautiful young daughters one of them's Coming on three years old, she looks like an angel. She sounds like an angel. Maybe she is an angel. I could be convinced of that once in a while. But then there's the odd time whenever something just goes wrong. 
doesn't work. And I, as a dad, have a longing in my heart for her acceptance. Is that bad? No, that's, that's not a bad desire. I want her to like me. I want her to accept me. I want her to approve of me. And yet in those moments, whenever she requires my discipline, if I am more concerned to have her approval than his approval, she has become my idol. And if whenever we have children, we feel to discipline them because we think if they approve of me, life will be good. And so we withhold our discipline when they are young or we withhold our disapproval when they are older and we would rather have their approval than his approval. Our children have become our idols. You know, one of the most cruel things, again, that I've seen is parents who sacrifice everything at the feet of their children sacrifice biblical principle and biblical value so that they could get that acceptance. And they sacrificed an awful lot to that God, but it disappointed them horribly. Whenever they get to the latter stages of their life, their hearts are broken. For not only have they lost the approval of their children, they've lost the approval of God, and they've lost everything. Remember Eli? with his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and he didn't discipline them. And so the glory of God departed. That's what happens whenever you have idols. Remember, Abraham took his children and said, God, or took Isaac and said, God, here he is. And God said, I approve of your heart. I approve of what you are doing. Another idol that you and I can have is our ministry. If I'm absolutely honest with you, God has had to check me on this one. If you're a preacher or a missionary, you know how awfully easy it is, awfully easy, whenever you're doing your ministry, to think if this ministry succeeded, I would be satisfied. But if it's not succeeding, God's not enough for me. I'm broken and I'm shattered and it's not enough. And so you can begin to say, I'm going to sacrifice. I'll even sacrifice my family to this ministry. I'll let them do their thing. I'll not spend time with them. I'll sacrifice my family. I'll sacrifice everything to this. We can even get to the point where we say, in order to get you to give me the satisfaction and the approval that I want, I'll begin to water down the the Bible. I'll begin to dilute some things. Because if I dilute some things, then maybe my ministry will grow. And whenever you've got to that point, your ministry has become your idol. And the truth is that we can sacrifice everything, but even if your church doubles, triples, or quadruples, but you lost the glory and the blessing of God in your heart, you've got nothing. But isn't it easy for our ministry to become more important than God? Isn't it easy to spend so much time in our ministry that we don't have time for God? Isn't that strange? We can make our ministry our idol. We can make anything that is good our idol whenever we lift it up and say, I want your approval more than his approval. And if I get your approval and your acceptance, then my life will be good. For young people, a boyfriend or a girlfriend can very easily become an idol. Whenever you would rather please them, even if it means you go places and do things that you know evoke the disapproval of God. If you've got there, he or she has become an idol. We can make our clothing our idol. We believe if we give enough to our clothing, it will give us acceptance and approval within the eyes of our world. And so when you go to buy some clothes 
and you see something, you're thinking more, will this get the approval of my friends? Will this get the approval of my society? Will this give me acceptance? Will this give me what my heart wants? And if the answer is yes, we will sacrifice an inordinate amount of money. We will even sacrifice biblical principle and value because we believe if I give enough to this, it'll give me acceptance. It'll give me approval. And if I've got that, then I've got everything that my heart wants. And yet the psalmist says, their sorrow shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. For no matter what in your life becomes more important than God, no matter what it is, something very good in its right place, it's always ultimately going to disappoint you. What happens then whenever you hear somebody preaching about tearing down your idols and you think, you know, God really did speak to me and I need to tear that idol down. Maybe money was becoming my idol and I need to tear down that idol and instead of working that overtime, I need to go to church in the middle of the week or instead of doing this or doing that, I need to tear down that idol and you tear down your idol, but you don't turn to God, you don't worship him, you don't adore him, you don't love him and you don't seek him. Guess what? Your heart's still not going to be satisfied. Imagine somebody, whenever the God so evidently showed himself to be the true God, and they went back home that day and they tore down their idol to Beal. They tore it to pieces. And yet they didn't turn to God, and so their heart's needs still aren't being satisfied, still aren't being met, still aren't being realized. And so the next day they're walking through the village, and they see somebody else, and their altar to Beal is still up. They're still worshiping Beal. What's going to happen in their heart? They're going to start thinking, well, I'm better than that person, Right? I mean, I tore down my idol. They didn't tear down their idol. Therefore, I'm better than that person. I'm superior to that person. At least I don't do what he does. At least I don't do what she does. And their heart is still barren. It's not satisfied in God. And so they feel better than that person. Or if they don't feel better, they start feeling bitter because they wonder, if I still did have that idol, would my heart be satisfied? In the secret places of my heart, they would say, I'm kind of bitter because I really still want my idol in my home. I really still want it and I don't have it. And so they're either feeling superior and becoming obnoxious and offensive or they're feeling bitter and their heart is twisted and turned out of shape. How does that work today? Imagine you say, God, I'm going to tear down my idol of money and I'm going to start going to church. But you go to church and just show up. You're not going to adore God, worship God, love God, or serve God. And so you show up at church this night and you're there and you see Bob who's got a beautiful home and he's working overtime or he, Bob's not there. You are there. He's working overtime to get more money to build a bigger house and your heart's not satisfied. What are you going to think? I'm better than Bob. I mean, here I am at church, my heart's not satisfied, but I'm superior. And if I see Bob, I'm going to have to say, hey, Bob, where were you? You know, the other way, I was so much better than you because, you know, I've torn down my idol. My heart's still not satisfied, but my idols are down. Or else you start feeling better. You know, I really wish I could have a house like Bob. I really wish that I could work overtime. I really wish that I could have that money. And you start feeling bitter within your heart. Or let's just mention another idol, and uh, this one might not go down too well, I don't know. I just want to preface this by saying whenever I was in Northern Ireland, I uh, went to university, actually studied computer science. I love computers. Uh, I really love innovation. I love iPhones, iPads. I love apps. I love everything. I, I really do. I honestly love that stuff. But you know that it's very easy for us to find energy and time and excitement to devote hours every day to technology, 
to Facebook and to the internet. And when it gets to the end of the day, you don't have the time or the energy or the excitement to meet with God. Doesn't that sound like you love the internet more than you love God? Doesn't that sound very like the definition of an idol? And yet you can spend so much time surfing and checking the news and checking Facebook and checking all of these things. When you get to the end of the day, do you feel good? No. That doesn't satisfy your heart, but you can sacrifice time, time alone with family, time alone with God. You can sacrifice everything to that idol, but it doesn't satisfy you. So imagine you say, that is an idol. I better cut back on that. I better get it into its place. And so you stop, you know, checking it every two minutes, even during, you just stop checking it every, you put it off to like every five minutes or whatever works for you. But then you hear some other people talking about what they saw on Facebook and you think, well, you know, I'm better than them. I mean, I check mine every six minutes and they check it every two. So I'm actually better than them. And, and I get, that gives me a really good feeling about being better than them. Or else you start feeling bitter. Really wish that I could be checking Facebook. I, I really feel like I'm missing out on something and you start feeling bitter. And so if you tear down your idols, whatever they might be, but you do not turn to God and love him and worship him and adore him and serve him, your heart is still going to be dissatisfied. Your heart has still got the longings, it's still got the cravings, and maybe you have turned down your idols, but if you haven't turned to God, you're still dissatisfied. And you know what? I've spent time right there, and I bet you some of you have spent time right there as well. And what happens is there, we can't stay there for long. Either way, we're going to become very shallow people, or we're going to end up walking away and thinking, I tore down my idols, I did everything they said to do, and it didn't work, but it didn't work because you didn't turn to God at the same time. But look at what it says in verse 8 of this passage. Look at it. It says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Look at verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. Look at verse 11. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Did you see that? In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. Every deep need and longing and craving of your heart, he can satisfy it. Your heart can be full to overflowing and bursting with joy. You can say, this is what I was made to be. This is who I was created to be, to be filled with God and to be in the presence of God. The question that all of the Bible is trying to answer, how do you and I, as sinful, broken people, get into his presence? Many would say, work a little harder, obey a little better, clean up a little cleaner, choose right over wrong, choose white over black. And the Bible says, no, 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 and no. We are guilty, sinful people, and no amount of trying, no amount of cleaning will do. We deserve to be separated from God forever because of our sins and because of our guilt. You and I, in our sinful condition, cannot get into the presence of God. But the song says, when I could not come to where he was, he came to me. And Jesus came and he died on a cross. And every sin that you have ever committed, he took it. Every sin that you'd ever committed, he paid the price. He took your penalty. He took your judgment. He took your blame and he took your shame. He was innocent. You were guilty. He was righteous. I was sinful. But he gave his life for mine. 
He drank the cup of the wrath of God that you and I should have drank from. He drank every last drop of it so that you and I don't have to. He went to hell and was forsaken by his father because you deserve to go to hell and be forsaken by the father. That's why it's all about mercy and it's all about grace because he died for you whenever you were the one that deserved to die. And the Bible says, put your faith in Jesus, sorrow over your sins that broke his heart and nailed him to the cross and put your faith in Jesus. And whenever you get Jesus, you've got everything and you're not going to be boasting and you're not going to be bragging because it wasn't you, it was him. Listen, when you get to heaven, it's not what you've done, it's what he's done on the cross that will be the price for your sins. Whenever you get into the presence of God, you know the beauty of the New Testament? Not just you getting into the presence of God, it's the presence of God getting into you. Whenever it comes in to fill your heart, what does he start crying? Abba, Father, God, I love you. I love you, Father. You are my dad. I love you. And now we start reading the word and we start obeying him because we love him. Isn't that the greatest commandment, to love him? Whenever he speaks of keeping the commandment, did you notice it's in the context of love? I obey you, God, because I love you. And so when I find something that you love, I love it. When I find something you hate, I will hate it. When you find something in my, and I find something here that says, stay clear. I'm going to stay clear. Why? Because I love you. But the struggle of humanity, the struggle of your heart and my heart after the presence of God has come into us whenever we are saved is not the car idol, it's not the truck idol, it's not the house idol, it's not the children idol. The idol behind them all is self-idolatry. You know what I'm talking about. It's whenever you dethrone God and you enthrone yourself. It's whenever... You think, I'm going to choose what pleases me, not what pleases him. That is the idolatry behind all idolatry. It's the idolatry of self whenever you and I want to sit upon the throne of our hearts instead of allowing God to put there. But whenever you read Romans 12.1, he says, listen, think about what Jesus has done for you. Romans 12.1, he says, think about the mercies of God. Think of how you deserve to go to hell for eternity. If that was what justice happened, isn't that where we would all go? You haven't worked your way into heaven and neither have I. If we're right with God, it's because we put our faith in Jesus and he paid the penalty for our sins. And whenever you think about the fact that he gave everything for you when you deserve nothing but judgment, Paul says in Romans 12:1, what's the logical response? What's the logical thing to do with a God like that? It's to get off your throne and get on your face before the living God. That's what he says to do. And whenever you dethrone yourself and you tear down the idol of self and you are filled with the Spirit of God, guess what happens? Every deep need in your heart is satisfied. Oswald Chambers said, Sanctification is the decision to cut away all self-idolatry and abandon ourselves entirely to God. And whenever the Holy Spirit fills your heart, which was... Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 he says his prayer is that we would be filled with all the fullness of God he says later on be filled with the spirit of God why is that because when you are filled with the spirit of God he sheds abroad in your heart the love of God 
That's why Paul said, I pray God, let them see the length and the breadth, the depth and the height of your love, O God. And whenever your heart is filled with the spirit of God and the love of God, you know what happens? You can say to anybody and everybody, not being disrespectful, but you can say, you can love me or you can hate me, but it's not going to break me and it's not going to change me because my heart's satisfied in Jesus. Who is it that fills your heart with the acceptance of God, that bears witness with yours that you are his child? You are accepted by God. It's the Holy Spirit. And whenever the Holy Spirit lets you know in the deepest part of your heart, you are loved and you are accepted by God. You can say to anybody and everybody, not being disrespectful, you can accept me or you can reject me, but it's not going to break me and it's not going to change me because I'm accepted by the king of the universe. Who is it that bears witness, that fills your heart with the sense that your life is approved of by God? It's when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And whenever you have his approval, the approval of the God, the creating king of the universe, you can say to this whole world, you can approve of me or disapprove of me, but it's not going to break me and it's not going to change me because I'm satisfied in Jesus. Listen, I want to tell you, whenever your heart is filled with the Spirit of God and you're so satisfied that you're willing to go anywhere, do anything, because his approval, his love, and his acceptance is worth it all, you're not going to feel better than anybody in this face of this earth. You're not going to feel better. Whatever you have got in your heart, he filled you by his love, his grace, and his mercy. You didn't earn it. You didn't work it. You didn't deserve it. He gave it by his grace. You're not going to feel better, and you're not going to feel bitter because now your heart's satisfied. How are you going to feel? You're going to feel broken. When you see people bowing to idols and expecting them to satisfy the need of their heart and you realize it's always going to end up in disappointment and sorrow, you're not feeling better, you're not feeling better, you're feeling broken. Remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and he looks over the city and he says, here is a city that's going to be judged. Here is a city that's going to be decimated. What is Jesus doing when he looks at that city? He's not cracking jokes about Jerusalem. He's not saying to all of the people ranting and raving about Jerusalem. He's bawling over Jerusalem. He is bawling. Why? He says, you have missed me. And if you've missed me, you've missed everything. And when we are filled with the spirit of God, we'll be bawling over the people who walk away from us. We will be bawling over people who turn to false gods, knowing that it's always going to end in disappointment and sorrow and heartbreak and pain. I think you understand exactly what I'm talking about when you see back through your own life, who were the people that really marked your heart for God? One lady that marked my heart for God, her name was Dolly McGreen. She was a lady from Northern Ireland, a single lady, and she was well on in life before I ever met Dolly. And we would visit her house, a little simple house. She probably could have been fairly well off if she'd wanted to be, but she'd give it all away to other people to help missionaries and people all across the world. Whenever I would go into Dolly McGrain's house, she wouldn't want to talk about the front page of the newspaper or the back page of the newspaper. She'd want to talk about Jesus. And the fragrance of Jesus was in her home, and you can say that's an odd way to put it, but that's the way it was. The fragrance of Jesus was in her house. And as a young person trying to get right with God and trying to get my feet in the ground, I didn't always just take the next step that I should have every time. And some people probably would have found it easy to write me off and say, well, we saw that one coming, but not Dolly. Dolly was filled with the love and the grace of Jesus. And whenever people walked away, she was broken and she bawled because she loved them. 
Whenever we came, I came to America, Lady Oki Kanaus was another lady that was filled with the Spirit of God. She was dying of cancer. She could hardly sleep at night. She would be screaming in so much agony. And yet whenever my wife and I would visit her, she always had a smile like you've never seen before because she was in love with Jesus. Her heart was filled with the Spirit. She was fully satisfied in Jesus. Those are the people that marked my life because it was all about Jesus. It was all about being filled with his spirit. And it was all about tearing down your idols and getting close to God. It bothers me sometimes when I hear people who love to talk about a lot of things, but they don't love to talk about Jesus. It can be the front page of the newspaper, but it never gets to Jesus. It's not right. It can be the back page of the newspaper, but if we never get to Jesus, it's not right. I understand exactly what we mean when I say I'd rather be old-fashioned than liberal. I understand exactly what we mean, but if we're always talking about being old-fashioned and we never get to Jesus, it's not right. Talk to some people and it's all critiquing the conservative people, but it never gets to Jesus, it's not right. I talk to some conservative people and it's always about critiquing the liberals, but we never get to Jesus. It's not right. Because when you're filled with the Spirit of God and your heart satisfied with Jesus, you want to talk about Jesus. He's the one who has satisfied your heart completely. George Beverly Shea is a name that we all know well. You've heard George Beverly Shea sing, I'm sure, many times on CD or something else. He died just recently, last year, I think, over 100 years old. When George Beverly Shea was a young man, he was obviously very gifted with a very good voice, and he would sing for his dad at church. He would even sing, I think, on Christian radio. Whenever he got to be a young man, financial needs of the family made it necessary for him to leave college and work in an insurance office. However, he continued to sing in churches and wherever he was invited to sing. Unexpectedly, he was offered an audition for a secular singing position in New York City and he passed the test. He was offered this position to sing in this secular radio position. One Sunday as he was going through this time of trying to decide what to do, he went to the family piano to prepare a song for the morning service. And he found there a poem that his mom had set on the piano. His mom was something like my mom. If she thought I was going through a big decision, she would put a little poem or a little quote or a little story somewhere where I could find it and hope and pray that it would speak to my heart. And George Beverly Shea's mom put this poem on the piano and when he got up on Sunday morning, he read the poem and it moved him deeply. He found its words very challenging and he started to compose music to put with this poem. As he was doing so, he said, I turned and I felt my mom's hands on my shoulders and I turned and there was my mother standing behind me with tears in my eyes. He said, over the years, I've not sung any song more than this one, but I never tire of its words. Listen to this. Is this your testimony this morning? I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful 
to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. That rules rather easy off our tongue, but the question this morning is, is it real in your heart? We've looked all week at the preeminence of Christ. He is preeminent, but the question this morning is, is he preeminent in your heart? Is he on the throne of your heart? Is your heart so satisfied with Jesus that you're not even looking for anything else to satisfy? Listen to this. This is the key. He's fairer than lilies of rarest bloom. He's sweeter than honey from out the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Those words read, roll awfully easy off my tongue. But are they true to your heart this morning? I'd rather have Jesus than anything. Because that is what entire sanctification is. Where you tear down your idols and you enthrone Jesus on the throne of your heart and you are filled with the Spirit and you are filled with joy. Listen to Acts 13, 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not in meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I've asked Brother Cassidy if he would sing this beautiful song. Listen, I know many of you have responded already at IHC and maybe every heart's need has been met. But if you're here this morning and you've got idols and the Spirit has spoken to you and you want to come and pray to tear those idols down and you want to be filled with the Spirit of God, I invite you this morning to come as they sing. I invite you to come and tear down those idols. I promise you they will disappoint you. Your heart is too big for money or things. It's too big for the approval of men or the acceptance of this world to ever satisfy. There's only one person can fill and satisfy your heart, and it's God himself. That's why C.S. Lewis said you might find that, you know, I think my marriage is going to satisfy my heart, but it doesn't. You might think a, a nice vacation was, it doesn't. There is nothing in this world that can satisfy your heart but God himself. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA.